بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسوله سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وبعد مولانا تميم mentioned in his talk yesterday an عبارة a portion of text from the from the عقيدة الطحاوية which is a book regarding the summary of the beliefs of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam it wasn't it wasn't Tahawi's original work right Tahawi in the beginning of the work said that this is the aqidah uh, that was taught by Imam Abu Hanifa and it wasn't the original work of Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah ta'ala either rather he met Sayyidina Anas bin Malik and he met a number of sahaba radiyallahu anhum and his teachers from the tabi'in were also the students of the sahaba radiyallahu ta'ala anhum so this is the aqidah of the Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah what does Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah mean? Ahlul Sunnah you understand the people who follow the Sunnah who's the Jama'ah? the Jama'ah is the sahaba radiyallahu anhum it's not like a democracy, like all the Muslims can get together in Minneapolis and have a vote today and say what we want to have as our Islam, that now yesterday, you know, pork was haram, now it's halal. That's not what it means. It means the Sahaba radiallahu ta'ala anhum and everyone who follows their way in every generation until ours. That's who the jama'ah is. Why? Because that's the only jama'ah that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to accept on the Day of Judgment. After the, the coming of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, Allah Ta'ala will not accept from anybody else. That's the only people Allah Ta'ala is going to accept from. And then afterward, whoever gets forgiven, gets forgiven later on. The only people who will be accepted as the ones that are on the haq is what? مَا عَلَيْهِ أَنَا وَأَصْحَابِي Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, that thing that I'm on and that my companions are on. So Tahawi radiallahu anhu, he rahimahullah ta'ala writes in this aqidah tahawiyah, which is universally accepted from all four madhahib, from all the parts of the Muslim world, from the east and the west. It's universally accepted as the basic primer, the first text that people learn in aqidah. He mentions that the love of the sahaba radiallahu anhum, hubbuhum, deenun, wa imanun, wa ihsan. What does it mean deen? It means it is our sharia. If you want to understand the Sharia, the way the Sharia functions inside and out, you have to understand it through their expression and transmission of the Sharia. There's no other recension or any other version of the Sharia that's acceptable to Allah. What does it mean, Iman? Iman means Aqidah. Their Aqidah is the Aqidah of Islam. Any other people who claim that they're Muslim, even if they scream till they're blue in the face, if their Aqidah doesn't match, the aqidah of the sahaba. If it doesn't come down on the standard of the sahaba radiallahu ta'ala anhum, it's not acceptable to Allah ta'ala. Wa ihsan. What does the word ihsan mean? Lexically, it means to make something beautiful. And it is mentioned in the hadith of Jibreel alayhi salam to worship Allah ta'ala as if you see him, and if you don't see him, to know that at least he sees you. What's the highest pleasure in Jannah and the highest reward in Jannah is to see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That that day the faces will be made to shine and they will be gazing upon their Lord. The person who has ihsan inside of their heart worships Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as if he sees him. Meaning what? That you have this quality inside your heart in this world in a, uh, in a sense of meanings. And you will have the literal quality in the hereafter. What does it come through? The muhabba of the sahaba radiallahu anhum. 
Because it's impossible that you love the Sahaba and then you hate Islam. It's impossible that you love the Sahaba and you hate the Quran. It's impossible that you love the Sahaba but you hate the Prophet ﷺ. It's impossible that you love the Sahaba and then you worship idols afterward. It's impossible that you love the Sahaba عنهم, then hate the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. It's a rational impossibility. And anyone who hates them, what is the, what is the sifa of that person's iman? It's worth mentioning again. This is not the Hawi, he's not some uh, like preacher that you know, uh, uh, whatever sectarian preacher that came to India or Pakistan or whatever, or Iraq or uh, one of these places in modern times. This is not a rhetorical flourish. This is a technical, technical uh, work that describes what, the, what the, the, the characteristic and the virtue of Iman is. That to hate them is what? Kufrun. It is disbelief. Because even if you scream till you're blue in the face, I love Allah, His Rasul Sallallahu the Quran, uh, and Medina, and uh, the Kaaba, all of these things. But you hate the Sahaba radiallahu ta'ala anhum, who are the ones through whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala vouchsafed all of these things. It's a, it's, it's a lie. It's completely a lie. It's like saying that, you know, I love so and so, but like I killed his wife and children. That doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. Things don't work that way. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said what? فَمَنْ أَحَبَّهُمْ فَبِحُبِّ أَحَبَّهُمْ وَمَنْ أَبْغَضَهُمْ فَبِبُغْضِ أَبْغَضَهُمْ It's a hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Tahawi wasn't making this up. He's just explaining what it means. He says what? Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said what? Because of whoever loves me, it's because they love me that they, they love them. Or so whoever loves them, radiallahu anhum, it's because they love me that they love them. And whoever hates them, it's because they hate me that they hate them. What did, what did Tahawi say? He says, to hate them is what? It's disbelief. It's kufr, wanifaq, and it's what? It's nifaq, it's hypocrisy. It's to act like you're a Muslim on the outside, and on the inside have the reality, the, 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 the darkness of what? Of kufr inside of your heart. وَالطُغْيَانِ it's a rebellion against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's a twistedness and a crookedness that certain people have inside of their heart. Tughyan is one of the sifat, it's one of the, 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 the attributes of kufr. It's not a small matter. It's a big deal. It's a hadith of Sahih Bukhari, man adali waliyan, faqad adhantuhu bilharb. Right? That Rasulullah sallallahu said, that Allah ta'ala said, it's a hadith qudsi of Bukhari. It's hadith qudsi and it's in Bukhari. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, whoever declares, uh, whoever uh, has enmity, makes an enemy of a friend of mine, I declare war on that person. It's for this reason, the person who has hatred for the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, it's feared that that person will not die on iman. If a person commits other types of sins, a person should repent and hope that Allah will forgive them. These types of sins, they're ridiculous. Because imagine, somebody, a man is in love with a woman, and he steals a kiss from her, and they're not married. Is it haram? Of course it's haram. But what? There was some desire in it. Maybe a person can say in front of Allah, Ya Allah, she was so beautiful, and I loved her so much, and uh, I couldn't control myself. I didn't do it in order to spite you. Whereas things like this, like why would you hate the ones that Rasulullah loves? Do you make money by doing that? No. Is there like some sort of natural, like a man is attracted to a woman, some sort of natural desire for it, or like a person is hungry for food? Is there a natural desire in it? Absolutely not. It is a pure and unadulterated form of kibr, of, of arrogance, and of disrespect to Allah and His Rasul. 
So it's important. I know like every speaker has mentioned this again and again from the beginning. It's worth mentioning. That's why we're here. It, it, only if you understand the context in which things are being said will you be able to benefit from them. So we move to what? To the Khulafa Rashidun, who are from the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, the ones that are closest in, 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 in their position with the Rasul sallallahu alayhi wasallam, And they're literally his temporal successors. They're his te- successors in every matter except for receiving wahi. Except for receiving revelation. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam went to the extent of saying that the Khulafa Rashidun, he says, Alaykum bi sunnati wa sunnati al Khulafa Rashidin al Mahdiyina. Khulu biha wa abdu alayha bin nawajid. It is a responsibility for you to follow my sunnah and the sunnah of my rightly guided successors. Take from it and grasp onto it to your molar teeth. Meaning even if you have to bite onto it and that's the only way you can hold onto it, bite onto it, never let it go. Shawaliullah rahimahullah ta'ala who is a great usuli theorist of the sharia and a great muhaddith uh, in the history of Islam, probably as a conservative estimate, at least 80% of the people who have unbroken chains of, uh, of narration in hadith, they narrate through this Shawaliullah Ahmad bin Abdul Rahim al-Dihlawi rahimahullah ta'ala in all of the different lands of the earth, not just in the Indian subcontinent. He mentioned that the, 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 the place of, of, of the, uh, the Khulafa Rashidun in our usul is somewhere between ijtihad and between tashri'ah. What is ijtihad? Ijtihad is when like, there's a question, like someone asks you something that didn't happen during the time of the Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa so there's no hadith or whatever. So the ulama get together and they think about how we're going to solve this problem, what's the correct answer for it? Because uh, there's no direct answer in the Qur'an or in the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa So the ijtihad, for example, somebody asks you, okay, I'm on the moon right now, what direction should I pray? The ulama are going to have to get together and think about it and get back to you with an answer. Try their best using what they know in order to figure out what they don't know. That's the rank of the normal ulama of this ummah. Tashri'ah means what? That Rasulullah says something and it's part of the deen. It means to make something into the sharia, to make it, to basically say the hadith and it's a hadith. This hadith that I mentioned that you have to take from the sunnah of the Prophet he said take from my sunnah and from the sunnah of my rightly guided successors. It indicates that the Khulafa Rashidun, Sayyidina Abu Bakr, Sayyidina Umar, Sayyidina Uthman, Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anhum, that their position is somewhere higher than the ijtihad of the normal ulama, although it's lower than the, the, what the Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa said. It's like a branch of the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi He set them in their place, he told the ummah to respect them, and they're the ones who kept true to his word. So just like yesterday, Mulana Musa talked about Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Uh, today, this talk is like an extension of that talk. Because one of the last things that Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu ta'ala anhu did before leaving this world is that he appointed Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu as his khalifa, as his, uh, as his successor. So the obedience of Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu is an extension of the obedience of Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anhu and the khilafah, the, the caliphate and the rule over the ummah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam of Umar radiallahu anhu is like an extension of the rule of Sayyidina Abu Bakr siddiq radiallahu anhu. So just like that, this talk is an extension of that talk. Uh, and it's, uh, in many ways you can just say that it's a, another chapter in the fada'il and the virtues and the beauties of Abu Bakr siddiq. So Umar ibn al-Khattab, to start from the beginning, he was born in Makkah Mukarramah. 
He was born to a clan of Quraysh. Quraysh is a large tribe, and the tribe is made up of different clans that, that war with each other, or that, 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 that dispute with, with, with each other over who has the superiority and who is in control of Makkah Mukarramah. Sayyidina Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam's grandfather, Abdul Muttalib, he was the undisputed chief of the Quraysh. After he passed away, the, the, the control of Quraysh will shift to the other tribal group. There's the Banu Abdul Shams and Banu Abdul Dal. Right? Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam belonged to the, the or sorry, the, 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 Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the branch that he belonged to, uh, when he was uh, a man, they no longer had control over Makkah Mukarramah. They no longer were in leadership. Rather, the branch that Sayyidina Umar who belonged to, they had control. Who is the people that belong to? Who are the people who belong to that branch? You have people like uh, uh, Abu Jahl, right? Abu Jahl, his parents didn't name him Abu Jahl. He became Abu Jahl because of the ignorance with which he behaved when Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam called people to the worship of one God. His name is Amr bin Hisham. He belongs to a clan of, of Quraysh called Mahzum. Sayyidina Umar belongs to a clan called Adi, which is allied with the Banu Abdul Dar, with, with Mahzum. Al-Walid ibn Mughira is the father of Khalid bin Walid. Right? His name is Al-Walid, and Khalid is Khalid bin Walid. Al-Walid ibn Mughira is also from this branch of Mahzum. Uh, these are the people basically through their wealth they take over Quraysh, even though they're not the, the favored and the, the, the more noble branch of, of, of the tribe. So when Rasulullah declares his uh, prophethood, a problem happens politically. Because they say, their forefathers are kings, our forefathers are, their forefathers ruled Quraysh, and our forefathers ruled Quraysh turn by turn. We can compete with them about that. When he says that he's a, a, a Nabi, we're not going to be able to compete with that. This is just some sort of bogus like one-upsmanship that, that, that's going on, and we don't accept any part of it. And you see that those people in general are the ones that are most uh, vociferously opposed to, uh, opposed to uh, the Prophet Wasallam's prophethood, which is his Nabuwa, right? So the first lesson we take from this is what? Don't be a hater. Rasulullah wasallam, his being the messenger of Allah, is there any part of Quraysh that's not honored by it? It exalted the name of Quraysh amongst the entire world, not just amongst the Arabs, amongst the entire world. Maybe if there's another planet that has like aliens on it, right? Mulana Faraz will go there and make da'wah and they'll accept Islam and they'll come to earth for hajj. Even Quraysh, their name will be exalted through the universe. Don't be a hater. If someone near you or next to you has some sort of good inside of them, if you accept it and you help them, you'll also receive a part of that good. If you hate on them and you're jealous, you neither make them bad by being jealous on them, you just hurt yourself. You're just kicking yourself in the foot, you're shooting yourself, sorry, you're shooting yourself in the foot, you're just harming yourself. So this is the, 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 the clan that Umar uh, was born to, and his mother is also from Mahzum. His mother, he's from Adi and his mother is from Mahzum. Their, their like side of Quraysh is in power right now, and so they're already kind of anxious, why is, why is he claiming uh, prophethood? What are we going to do with this now? And so they say he's a liar, he's possessed, he's a poet, he's in, uh, possessed by a jinn, uh, uh, he's crazy, all of these other things. Uh, but uh, uh, that's the, the, the scene that he's born, born into, the part of Quraysh that he's in. It's not the same, the clan of Taim that Abu Bakr was born into. They don't have this rivalry with Banu Hashim. 
Right? Sayyidina Ali is born into Banu Hashim. Right? Even Sayyidina Uthman radiallahu ta'ala anhu, they're from Banu Abd al-Shams. They're from the, 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 the side of the tribal confederation that is actually closer to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Even though they, some of them, many of them opposed the, the, the Prophet ﷺ for a long time, like uh, Abu Sufyan, etc., etc. But they're already from that side of the, the tribe. Umar who doesn't have that benefit. He's already, all of his family members and cousins and close part of the part of Quraysh he belongs to, they're already very defensive about this whole thing. He, uh, uh, is the son of Al-Khattab. Khattab is a man of very gross temper. He's a very angry man and he's a very violent man. Khattab radiallahu ta'ala anhu is, is Khattab uh, 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 ibn uh, Nufail. Khattab has a cousin by the name of Zayd bin Amr bin Nufail. He's like a nephew to him, but he's like a cousin in, because they're similar in age. So Khattab is what? He has like a, a relative, a kinsman by the name of Zayd bin Amr bin Nufail. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa describes Zayd bin Amr bin Nufayl as being who? As being a person in Jahiliyyah who used to shun the worship of idols. He didn't used to worship idols. He used to shun the worship of idols. And he used to uh, reproach Quraysh for their practices, ignorant practices. One of, one of the most noteworthy uh, things that he used to do was that when uh, the people in Jahiliyyah from Quraysh, the idolaters, would have a daughter they would oftentimes bury the baby girl alive. Sometimes when she's just born, and sometimes after like a year or, or several months or two years, when she's still a little girl, they'll bury her alive. Why? Because they say, oh, she's just going to bring shame on our family. She's going to be a burden. We have to feed her. She cannot fight. She cannot work. She cannot earn money. So they used to bury their daughters alive, which is a completely in, inhuman act. Zayd bin Amr bin Nufail, when he would hear that somebody is going to, is going to bury their daughter alive, he would show up and he would plead with the parents, let her go, I'll take care of her. Let her go, I'll take care of her, I'll raise her. And so when they would let him take the girl, imagine how difficult it is if somebody just gave you like a baby, like a two-year-old girl, and you have to take care of her now. How difficult will that be? Even if you have a wife, even if you have a family to help you, even if you have money, how difficult will it be? And we have what? We have all of this uh, 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 grocery stores and... Caribou and Taco Bell and Crescent Moon Halal Restaurant and all these things to aid a person in there and their living. Whereas in those days, if you want to make tea, you have to go get the firewood yourself, start the fire yourself without matches, without a lighter. Things were very difficult in those days. So imagine this man raised several, several girls like this. And what happened is when they became balad, when they became adult, like hit the age of majority, like 14, 15 years old, he would take the same girl back to her family and say, look, all the hard part, you said, you know, we have to feed her. I fed her. She's an adult now. If you want, you can take her back. And if you don't, uh, uh, then you can leave her now. So he would give the girls back. Sometimes the family wouldn't accept the girl still. So he'll go himself and find someone for her to marry and marry her off. Rasulullah said about this Zayd bin Amr bin Nufail, that on the day of judgment, Allah Ta'ala will raise him up as an ummah unto himself. Allah Ta'ala will raise him up. He's not going to be one of the mushrikeen, one of the juhal. Allah will raise, up, raise him up unto himself. Allah Ta'ala will accept from him. And he will be like an ummah on, uh, uh, unto himself. Now why do I tell you his story? The reason I tell you his story is what? Khattab, who is his nephew by relation, but like his cousin, basically. They grew up together. He thought this man is an embarrassment. 
He thought this man is a, a, a this man is an embarrassment. This man is an embarrassment to Quraysh, and he threatened him. He said, "If you come anywhere near the Kaaba, I'll kill you." So he had to live in the outskirts of Makkah Mukarramah. This Zayd bin Amr bin Nufail had a son whose name is Sa'id. For those of you who remember from the Ashara Mubashirin bil Jannah, there is one name comes Sa'id bin Zayd. He's the least well known out of all of them. Him and Umar ibn Khattab, it's a very similar dynamic. They're like cousins, right? Sa'id bin Zayd accepts Islam first. He's a soft-hearted man. And he's a man of beautiful akhlaq. But the difference here is what? He's older than Umar ibn Khattab. And Sayyidina Umar who when he's a, like a little kid, he looks up to him. And, and he sticks up for his little cousin. And they have a good relationship with each other. And they have a lot of respect for one another. So Umar ibn al-Khattab, like the rest of his clan, he's really like, what is this Islam stuff? This is, he's just lying, he's making all these things up, this is all bogus, they're doing this to ruin our way of life, maybe they just want to take power, maybe they want to make money, and this is all a big fraud. But the thing that unsettles him inside of his mind is what? My cousin Saeed, he's a good man. He's a decent man, he's an upright man. He took care of me when I was a kid. He stuck up for me like an elder brother, and I never saw anything from him except for good. Why is it that he's following this? So he had trouble, trouble dealing with that. Despite that, what happens? There's a fork in the road. Things can go either way. Umar ibn al-Khattab is an intelligent person. He's one of the few people from Quraysh who knew how to read, by the way, before Islam came. His uncle Abu Jahl, you know what his nickname used to be before the Prophet ﷺ came? It used to be Abu al-Hakam. Right? Hakam is like hikmah, like wisdom. And he became Abu Jahl afterward because he, he used to have all the characteristics of a good man. He used to feed the hungry, he used to settle people's disputes, he used to solve people's problems in Jahiliyyah. But it was all fake. It was all fake. The secret, there was still like a bug inside of him that he was able to hide from everybody. But Allah Ta'ala exposed it to everybody that this man only did all of these things because he wanted to be a tough guy, a macho guy, show off in front of everybody. Right? Inside his heart, there was still this bug inside and he didn't clean it out. Which is another lesson for all of us. Instead of going out there trying to show how wonderful we are, don't, don't like show that you're better than who you really are or show how wonderful you are. Allah knows best who fears Him. So this man went forward and wanted to be a leader, but he still had sickness inside of his heart. He should have worked on himself. Because of this hypocrisy, Allah Ta'ala exposed him in front of everybody. So who is Abu Hakam, right? Abu Jahl, who is his favorite nephew, the one who he thinks that, or his favorite uh, youngster, he thinks that this guy is going to be the one who takes my place. He's like my protege, my understudy. My, uh, uh, he's going to be my successor. It's Umar ibn al-Khattab. So Umar ta'ala anhu, just like on the line of his, uh, of his uncle, he hates the Prophet ﷺ, he hates Islam, he thinks the entire thing's a fraud in order to... Uh, uh, Shame the names of their forefathers. Just like Khattab thought the same thing about his, about his uh, uh, cousin, right? Zayd bin Amr bin Nufail. So one day, this injustice that he feels is happening, it fills his heart. And notice, he doesn't go and ask the Prophet ﷺ or talk to him about anything. Rather, he just hears one side of the story and he gets real upset. And so he takes his sword and he says, I'm going to go kill the Prophet ﷺ. So when he's on his way, sword unsheathed, right? Like uh, uh, Shaykh uh, uh, Walid said in the beginning, I mean, he's a big guy. He had to lift his feet off the ground even when riding on a riding beast so that they don't drag. 
So when he comes out with the sword in, in the streets of Makkah Mukarramah, everybody knows something's about to go down. So one of the Muslims asked him, what are you going to go do? He said, I'm going to go and kill Muhammad. Imagine this, to murder the Prophet would have been the biggest sin that was ever committed. But Allah Ta'ala saw, unlike his uncle Abu Jahl, who showed good on the outside, but on the inside he was sick. This Umar anhu, what was his kafiyah? It was the opposite. That he showed every sign of sickness on the outside, but on the inside he was doing it, why? Out of sincerity. It was a wrong sincerity, it was misguided, but it was what he felt that something wrong was happening, he was going to set it straight with his own hands. He's not all about talking smack and then, you know, afterward like sitting back, laying back and just letting everything happen, right? He wasn't, he wasn't fronting, he was for real, right? Allah loves people who are for real, by the way. If you're good, then that's real good, mashallah. But Allah Ta'ala doesn't like people who are, who are like two-faced or like who are just fakers. So what happens? He takes his sword and he's going to go kill the Prophet ﷺ. One of the Sahaba sees like what's going on. He asks, yo, oh, oh, what's going on? What are you going to do? He said, I'm going to go kill Muhammad. He doesn't know that this, this uh, person has become a Muslim. And so that Sahabi, you know, he's like, oh my goodness, this guy's going to do this right now. We have to think fast. So the only thing he can think to do is say what? He said, you know what? Uh, if, you're such a, if you're such a big guy who loves justice so much, uh, instead of uh, going and killing somebody else from the different clan, go sort out your own family first. Your sister became Muslim. He's like, what? Now, this is, he has fairness inside of him, right? Which is what? He's like, he has a good point. I'm not going to go and fix everybody else's clan, whereas this thing is in my... We have to fi fix our own house first. So what does he do? He, he storms off to his sister's house. So his sister, his brother-in-law, and Khabab ibn al-Arat, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, who is one of the, one of the people who Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam taught the Qur'an and that person needs to go and teach the Qur'an to other people. This is the rank of the ulama of this ummah by the way. When Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was alive, do you think every fiqh question he used to answer? No. He used to have people who knew the sharia enough, even during his lifetime, people would go to them to ask. Because you cannot take every question, you know, if someone becomes a, a new Muslim, you know, uh, they want to, Yusuf wants to like memorize Abbas uh, Tawalla, uh, he's not going to go to the Prophet and memorize it from him. You go to one of the Quran teachers that Rasulullah appointed, right? So, Khabab bin Arat is teaching them what? Taha, ma anzalna alayka al Quran li tashqa, illa tadkiratan li yakhsha. Right? Taha, ya Muhammad, we didn't send down this Quran, alayka salatu wasalam, we didn't send this Quran down on you. So that you can be wretched. So that it's, it's like a burden on you or a bummer on you. Although many people think that sometimes, right? Aban, that I'm a Muslim, everybody else gets to like have a pepperoni pizza and, and have fun and go to the dance and whatever. And I'm the only one who has to sit in the corner and eat cheese pizza because it's halal or whatever. That's not why. Allah Ta'ala prepares something better for you. Right? So these are the ayat that are coming down. And, uh, uh, and they, they sound so beautiful in Arabic. And what happens is that uh, you know, someone says, oh, Omar is coming, Khabab bin Arat radiallahu anhu, he's like a person, he has no tribal protection. Omar radiallahu anhu could have killed him like, a, like an animal and nobody would have said anything. Nobody, there wouldn't have been any consequence. So in fear, he hid behind a curtain. Omar radiallahu anhu comes, busts in the door and he uh, uh, yells at his sister. He says, true that you, you uh, uh, accepted the deen of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam." And she says, yes. And he hits her. A'udhu Billah. He hits her. And he hits her so hard she starts to bleed. 
and she feels, and she's just like, you know, she's just like struck now. And now all of a sudden he feels like, you know what, this wasn't right. Like he feels something human inside of him that this wasn't right. What I did, it wasn't right. So he calms down. He just, he pulls himself back from going down that path. And then uh, what happens is that he asks, he says, what is this heymana? What is this weird hymn and chanting that I hear from you when I came into the house? And she said, it's the Qur'an. And uh, he said, let me see it. She says, no, you don't have wudu. I mean, he's literally going to come and kill her, right? This means what? Not only did they used to learn the Qur'an, they also knew fiqh as well. And they used to actually practice it. They believed it to be sacred. Nowadays, anything happens, right? Something's inconvenient. Uh, they're like, oh, well, you know, Shaykh Google said that I don't have to do this and that and whatever and stuff for a lot, no problem. No. Like literally her brother came to her house to kill her. Still, she respects the sharia of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So what happens? Because this is important to know. He'll go and make wudu at that time. What happens from the wudu? It changes you. It makes you a better person. Next time you get upset, maybe you should make wudu. It's actually a hadith. The Prophet said that. You should make, it's one of the things, that, ways of dealing with anger is make wudu. Right? Imagine it changed him from being on his way to kill, kill the Prophet and his sister to what? So it's like, let's see what's there inside, the, inside this, this uh, Qur'an of yours. And so then he makes wudu, and he reads what's on the scroll, because he was one of the few people who knew how to read. And he's, he, he, he's, he praised it. He said, what wonderful words are these? This is not the like, garbage that I thought that, that it was. This is something beautiful. And so Khabab bin Arat, who comes out from behind the parda, then he's, oh, I can tell you more about it. Right? <laughs> And so what happens? He left his house to do what? And now what is he going to do? Now he's going to go to the Prophet ﷺ and he's going to accept the deen at his hands. When he knocks on the door, Rasulullah ﷺ is sitting with his companions and with Sayyidina Hamza anhu. All of them, when they hear Umar is coming, they're like, oh my goodness, this is all going to go down now. This is like, the, this is going to be, you know, this is going to be like, like a very Hollywood type ending. It's not going to be good. Because they knew him, they knew his disposition and they knew what he was capable of and they knew uh, what his feelings were about the deen and they knew he was like tight with his uncle who was what? Abu Jahl. So what happens? Sayyidina Hamza who says, don't worry, let him in. If he wants something good, we'll give him something good and if he wants trouble, we'll give him trouble. So they let him in and he says, Ashadu an la ilaha illallah, Ashadu anna Muhammad, Muhammad, Muhammad Rasulullah. That I bear witness, I testify that there's no God except for Allah and that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is his messenger. And then what does he do after accepting Islam? The first thing he does is he goes to Abu Jahl. His uncle's like, oh, bete, how's, how's it going? My favorite nephew and whatever and awesome, wonderful, this and that. You know, good to see you. I'm glad you came by, etc., etc. And uh, sit down. That's what, no, 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 no need to sit down. I just wanted to say one thing to you. He said, what? He said, I bear witness that there's no God except for Allah and that Muhammad is his messenger. And the, 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 the expression on his uncle's face changes and he just cusses him out the door and says, get lost. Now, look at this. First of all, Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab, what was he? He wasn't like undercover Muslim. It's one thing. There have been times in this ummah, if you say you're a Muslim, people will kill you. Do we live in that time right now? No. There are times in your life, it's probably not a good idea to like 
rub the Islam in, your, in somebody's face or whatever, right? Like if you're in a dark alley and someone's like, oh, I hate Muslims, and the other guy's like, I hate Muslims, and the third guy and the fifth guy, they all say, I hate Muslims, and they're all like, mashallah, have like tattoos all over the thing, and each one, one of them has a switchblade in his hand. That's probably like a good time to be like, yeah, my name's Bill, and just slip away, if that's how you roll. <laughs> if that's how you roll. There's still some people from this ummah, they're going to say that I'm, I'm a Muslim, and Allah will protect them, nothing will happen to them. But if that's not, you're not feeling it at that time, it's one of those don't try this at home, you know, kid, don't try this at home type of deals, right? The idea is that many of the day-to-day situations that we're in right now, we can't, nothing's going to happen to us. Shaitan makes you so afraid something's going to happen to you. Sayyidina Umar who never feared any of that. That's why Allah Ta'ala protected him from any of these, uh, from any of these consequences. This is the, the reason that Sayyidina Umar who became Muslim in the normal causes and effects uh, world that, that you and I, the physical world of causes and effects that we look at and think about. What was the, what was the spiritual cause for him to accept Islam? Rasulullah was a, a beautiful person and he used to see the beauty in everybody. He used to see good in everybody. His wish was that everybody receive hidayah. His wish was that every, it broke his heart when people would die on, on kufr. He wished that Abu Jahl become Muslim. He wished that Al-Bulid bin Mughira becomes a Muslim. He wished that everyone would become Muslim. And so his dua from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was what? Ya Allah, one of, at least one of the two Umars give them guidance. Who are the two, who are the two Umars? Amr bin Hisham, Abu Jahl, the uncle, and the nephew, Umar bin Khattab. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, his decision came down on who? On Umar ibn Khattab. And it's the dua of the Prophet ﷺ that brought him into Islam. This is another realization that there's nobody by the consensus of our aqidah that has a higher maqam than Umar in this deen, except for Abu Bakr anhu and the Prophets ﷺ. Even him, it's what? It's not him who earned his place in this, this ummah. It's what? It's all barakah from somebody else's, dua from somebody else's, uh, uh, effort from somebody else's crying in front of Allah Ta'ala from somebody else's asking Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala from somebody else's good deeds and ultimately even all of that is from the fadl of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala who created the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam precisely like he created him so that we can benefit from his du'as so that we can benefit from his crying we can benefit from his asking so this Umar ibn Khattab when he became a Muslim the, the Sahaba radiallahu said before that, Islam and Muslims used to be humiliated. In reality, it's never humiliated. But in the outworld, outward sense, people used to mock and jeer the Muslims. They used to do just stupid things to Rasulullah wasallam. They'd throw garbage at him. One time he was making sajda wasallam. They threw the entrails of a, a camel on top of him. He literally couldn't lift it off. It was so heavy. And it, it, it almost killed him. They used to do these kinds of silly things with him, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. But since Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu became Muslim, they didn't fear Allah and they didn't fear the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, but they were sure as heck afraid of Umar ibn al-Khattab. And like Shaykh Walid mentioned, that before that they couldn't come and pray the Salat in front of the Kaaba. After that they could pray the Salat in front of the Kaaba because they knew that if they started something, there would be somebody else to give a, a, an answer back. They knew there would be somebody who has ghayra for Islam. You know what ghayra is? Right? Ghayra is a word for the youngsters. There's no translation of it in English. And like Mulana Mumtaz al-Haq used to say, that's maybe why nobody here has it. Ghayra is a word meaning what? 
It's a word meaning the feeling that you feel when somebody attacks or threatens something dear to you, close to you. So if somebody is like attacking like uh, an old woman outside, is that good or bad? It's bad. If that old woman is your mother, that's even worse. You'll feel different between the two of them. It's not that you feel, that's not like you don't have respect for like any random old woman, but when it's your mother, you're gonna, you're gonna feel a type of anger that's different than when, you, when it's just someone you don't know. That's a good feeling. That's a good feeling. Sa'ad bin Mu'adh showed his ghayrah one time. The Messenger of Allah smiled and said, Ya, ya, ya Sa'ad. Allah is pleased with your ghairah and know that the Messenger of Allah has more ghairah than you and that Allah has more ghairah than His Messenger That's why in the beginning we mentioned that don't mess with somebody who Allah Ta'ala loves. Don't say something bad about it because if you fall cross paths with Allah Ta'ala's ghairah in the wrong way, you're not going to make it. Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu used to have ghairah for Islam. He didn't used to let people talk nonsense, garbage or do stupid things to Islam or to the Muslims or to the Messenger of Allah except for he was there to make that not happen, to be an impediment between that thing being said or being done, and to be a, a, a deterrent from anyone saying or doing, doing anything like that. Again, when it was time for the hijra to go to where? To go to Medina Munawwara. Rasulullah gave, in the beginning, he used to give permission to his companions to make hijra. The command came, everybody has to go. Whoever could have gone and didn't go. Some people were stuck, that was different. Whoever could have gone but didn't go, that was considered to be a bad, it's a stain and a blight on their Islam. But the problem is this, is that after a couple people started leaving, the mushrikeen of Mecca, what they would do is they would grab the people when they're leaving, they would take their property, their wealth, beat them up, torture them, jail them, whatever, they would do all this stuff. So people, everyone who left Makkah Mukarramah, they had to leave undercover. They had to leave like in the darkness of the night or they had to slip out, slip away. Everybody except Umar ibn al-Khattab. He went out in the middle of the day on purpose. He took his bow out and he said, I'm the best archer in all of Quraysh. Whoever wishes to lose their life on this day, come and try to stop me. Nobody had the backbone, nobody had the guts to say or do anything. And he literally just broad daylight walked right out of Makkah Mukarramah, and he made his hijrah. As for Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anhu, when he wanted to make his hijrah, he was one of the first people who wanted to go because he knew this is a commandment of deen. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa would stop him again and again and again. And finally he told him, I wanted you to stay back. Why? Because I want you to be my companion to leave. So Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu, he's one of the first people to leave. Look at the ghayrah of Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu ta'ala anhu. He arrives in Medina Munawwara and he sets up just like every other one of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum sets up. He goes through whatever difficulties like everybody else goes through difficulties. When it's time to go out in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he never stays back from any battle. When it's time to go out in the path of Allah ta'ala at the battle of Badr, after the Muslims have victory, all of the, the prisoners from the mushrikeen that they captured, it's nearly 70 prisoners that they captured, all of them, Rasulullah asks, what's the, the mashwara? What, what, what is your advice that, that we should do with these, with these captives? And so Sayyidina, Umar ibn Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq who said what? I think we should forgive them. Why? Because maybe from their progeny, there are going to be people who accept the deen later on. And this is his sagacity, it's his wisdom. That a bloodline can be in kufr for a hundred generations. 
If even one of those generations says La ilaha illallah, it becomes the reason for all of them having existed. Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu, what did he say? He said, not only should we kill all of them, how dare they oppose the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa But he said to the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, you take Abbas, your uncle, and you kill him with your own hand. He said to Abu Bakr, you take your son, uh, who fought against the Muslims, and you kill him with your own hand. He said, I'll take whoever is from Adi and from Makhzum, and I'll kill them with my own hand, so that the mushrikeen know after this day, we mean business. That their jahili system, it's over. It's overturned. It doesn't even exist. It doesn't even exist to us. Because that's what happened in the beginning when the, 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 it, before the battle started, there were three champions from the mushrikeen who came out. Three tough guys. Utbah, uh, 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 Ibn Rabi'ah, and Al-Walid Ibn Utbah, and I forget who the, the, the third one is. The three of whom? Uh, no, no, not Abu Jahl. So the three of them, they come out and they, they challenge the Muslims that who are your three champions will challenge you to single combat in front of everybody. And so three of the Ansar, you have to, you have to appreciate how awesome the Sahaba anhum were. Without skipping a beat, three of the Ansar come out and said, well, that's it, we'll do them. Uh, the Mushrikeen of Quraysh are confused. They're like, who are these people? And they say, you know what? We don't understand what's going on. We didn't even come here to fight with you. We don't even know who you people are. This is like, why are you even here? This is our, this is our beef we have, right? This is our beef we have, Makhzum and Banu Abdul versus Banu Abdul Shams. Why are, you guys, why are you guys here like, they don't even get it. They don't even understand. There are two uh, teenagers from the Ansar. They were barely young enough to be allowed even to go and join the battle. They asked, they asked the, the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, who is this Abu Jahl? Who is this Abu Jahl? We point him out to us, we want to know who is this man who is so uh, abusive and who is so vile and who is so despicable with the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa He's made our to-do list. We're going to do him today. Imagine, the both of them are on foot with swords. He's mounted, has armor, he's a trained warrior. The, the Ansar radiallahu anhum are like farmers. They come forward, they're like, that's it, we're going to do... They're like upset. They're like going to defend the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa And the mushrikeen are like, what's even... What's going on? Who are you? And then the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi he tells the Ansar, come back, come back, it's okay. And then he sends three people forward from his own family. From, from not, only, not only from the Muhajirin, but not, not only from Quraysh, but the closest three relatives that are there in the army, he sends them first to go and fight them because the Mushrikeen don't understand what's going on. So it's in that backdrop, what did Umar ibn Khattab say? He said, I'll, I'll, I'll execute my relatives with my own hand and let them know that we'll send a message to, to them that, so they know that this happened. Abu Bakr, you execute your son. Uh, uh, Rasulullah, you execute your uncle. So that they know we mean business. That this is something that we don't have any compromise with regards to anymore. Abu Rasulullah wasallam, he took the mashra and he did a compromise that they're going to ransom. They're neither going to let them off free like Abu Bakr anhu suggested. Nor are they going to, uh, uh, nor are they going to execute them like Sayyidina Umar radiAllahu anhu suggested. Rather, they're going to ransom them. Whoever can pay the ransom, that person goes free, and whoever cannot pay the ransom but knows how to read and write, whoever teaches ten, ten Muslims to read and write, that person will also go free. But what is very interesting, there's a, a, a hadith I think in the Musnad of Bazar, in which Sayyidina Umar radiAllahu anhu said there are three issues in which 
I had an opinion and my opinion uh, agreed with the, the revelation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And one of those things was what? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself said to the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa that those mushrikeen that came and fought you, you uh, uh, it, it wasn't proper that they should be ransomed. They should have paid for uh, showing up against in the enmity of Allah and His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Right? What are the other two issues? One is that the Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu, he once came to the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and said to him, there are certain people, the way that they look at, at the azwaj mutahharat and the way they talk to the azwaj mutahharat, the mothers of the believers, they don't show respect properly. So they should, that his suggestion is that they should be covered behind the parda, they should be behind the veil. So that, so that what? People don't disrespect the ummahat al-mu'mineen in that way. And then what? The ayat of the hijab are revealed after that. This is one of the things, mashallah, people will like bust their chops about like why is there a barrier in the masjid? There's no barrier in the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ in the old days. Yeah, the reason for the barrier is what? Is because this is the sunnah of the Ummahat al-Mu'mineen. This is the sunnah of the women of the Ahlul Bayt of the Prophet ﷺ. The Ahlul Bayt of the Prophet ﷺ, one of the meanings is the relatives of the Prophet ﷺ. But there's a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, Alu Muhammad and Kullu Taqiyin. The family of the Prophet ﷺ is everyone who fears Allah. So it's okay for you to follow their sunnah as well. This is a long other hadith discussion with regards to the Prophet ﷺ that during his lifetime when the women would come and pray in the masjid, they didn't come for five prayers, they only came for two. Which ones? For Fajr and for Isha. It was only in the eighth year of Hijrah that a candle, Tamim al-Dari radiallahu anhu had the idea of bringing candles into the masjid. Now imagine in a building of this size, if you put in like five, six candles, are you gonna be able to see anything? No, you're just going to be able to see silhouettes. You will not see things clearly that you can see my face and I can see your face. Even then, even then, even despite that fact, what did the Messenger of Allah say? That the best prayer of the man is in congregation and the best prayer of the woman is at home alone. Even then, what did the Messenger of Allah say? So which means what? If you pray at home as a man, it's valid. Just like that, if the sisters pray in the masjid, it's valid. Even then, what did the Messenger of Allah say? The best of the sufuf of the men are which ones? The front. Which are the best sufuf of the women? The back ones. Right? So don't get confused. Some people will try to push you extreme one direction, kick the women out of the masjid and this and that. And some people nowadays, it's very fashionable to push it in the other direction. That's not, that's, that's an extreme. So Sayyidina Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and it's very interesting. Later on, there's a hadith narrated in the Muwatta by him. He's the one who gave the suggestion for the Ummahatul Mu'mineen, that, that, that nobody should meet them except for behind the, the hijab. He's the same one that he told the women, don't come to the masjid the way that you come. Because the women started coming without the same amount of haya that they used to have during the time of the Messenger of Allah But still, his moderation was what? Was that he would narrate from the Messenger of Allah I heard the Messenger of Allah say, don't forbid the slave women of Allah from coming to the masjid. So he gave them the correct advice. Just like he gave the correct advice for the family of the Prophet ﷺ, then the ayat came down. But on the flip side, he also didn't kick them out, throw them out of the masjid. Some of the women were upset. How dare he say this? So who are they going to go and complain to? They're going to go and complain and say, the Aisha ta'ala anha. What did she say? She's like, yeah, girl power. Don't let someone else's like civilizational baggage and issues influence what, how we practice our Islam. The Ummahatul Mu'mineen, 
the, the muhajirat and the ansariyat and the sahabiyat, there was nobody who was impinging on their rights. They used to speak up. If they had an issue, they used to speak up. Sayyidah Aisha radiallahu what did she say? Girl power, how dare he tell us that? No. She said, you know what? If the Rasul sallallahu alayhi saw the way that you come to the masjid nowadays, he would have also forbade you from coming. So this is the second one. What's the third one? The third one is what? When they, when they, on the day of the Fatih, when they entered into the haram, the masjid al-haram, the, the rows are circles, right? So where is the imam supposed to stand? So people gave different opinions. Said Umar ibn al-Khattab he, he said that the, the imam should stand where? Should stand where the maqam of Ibrahim is. Right? وَاتَّخِذُ مَقَامَ إِبْرَاهِيمَ مُصَلَّى Right? Then the, the, the wahi comes down on it. So there's a hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that the, the, the every, uh, every uh, qawm and every ummah has a... It's muhdath or muhaddath? Muhaddath, right? That he has a, every, every, every ummah has a muhaddath. What is muhaddath? Somebody who receives the... Who, somebody who uh, 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 resonates with the, with the signal of revelation. Meaning he's not a nabi, but when the, when the wahi comes down, it affects him. And one of the interesting ways that this was explained to us by our asatiza in, 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 in Madrasa in Lahore, and it's a very modern example, is if you put like a cell phone on top of a radio, like a, 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 like, a, like a second and a half before the phone rings, the radio starts to hiss. It's not like the radio is a phone. You can't get a phone call on it. But the phone signal affects it somehow. Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab ta'ala anhu, his heart was so clean and it was so pure, that when the wahi would come on the Prophet wasallam, it would affect him as well. And so he would get these kind of like, these images. And it wasn't the only miracle of Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab ta'ala anhu. So Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu, what was his ghayra? We mentioned the battle of Badr, what was his ghayra? On the battle of Uhud, when the Muslims were initially winning, and then they had to retreat in haste because of the whole issue of the archers and the hillock and everything. When the Muslims finally retreated up the mountain to a place where the mushrikeen were too tired and exhausted to be, able to, to, to be able to pursue them. Remember, when you have a battle with two armies, winning a battle is not, not where the victory lies. Because what happens is that if one army is getting beaten and they retreat to a place of safety, then they can attack again tomorrow. It's not really that big of a deal just to be defeated in one battle. The actual victory in a war happens when you hem the enemy army into a place where they cannot run away and they just keep getting hacked down. Once you wipe out their army, there's nobody to, left to oppose you anymore. So this is part, part of the order of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum is that despite the complete chaos that happened inside of their ranks, they were able to retreat up the mountain to a place and inflict enough harm on the mushrikeen that despite them being a third of the size of their army or, or even less, <clears throat> they retreated to such a point where the mushrikeen didn't have it in them to chase them. Because they knew that they're going to fight back really hard and they, they just gave up. So when they got to that point where the army of the mushrikeen is lower on the mountain <clears throat> and the army of, of, of the, the, the Sahaba radiallahu anhum is higher up and the mushrikeen give up, uh, give up the, uh, uh, the himma, the courage to be able to pursue them. And they say, okay, fine, you guys got away. Abu Sufyan yells at, at the Prophet ﷺ and yells at the Muslims. And he says what? He says, he says, one day for us and one day for you. You had the day of Badr and we have the day of Uhud. 
Uh, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, this is one thing, right? People think that piety is just being, eh, just slap me again. No, do it again. Uh, this is not, that's not, when I read the stories of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, that's not what I see. Uh, it's fine. If you're in a position of weakness and you cannot do anything, then there's a sunnah for you as well. And to bear your difficulties with patience, there's a great khair in it. But it doesn't mean you go and make a fool out of yourself for no reason. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa didn't come here just to get beat up and then inspire a generation of like Indian Pakistani kids to get beat up and Somali kids to get beat up. That's not what he came for. He came so that we're saved on the day of judgment, all of us, no matter who we are, where we're from, what race we belong to or uh, what country we come from. So what happens is this man, he just said that we're even. How can anyone be even with the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa and the Sahaba radiallahu anhum? They're literally on the top of the mountain and the mushrikeen are on the bottom. And so Rasulullah who is himself, he lost a tooth. Imagine that, he lost a tooth in battle and he's fighting to make sure that blood doesn't hit the ground out of fear that if uh, it hits the ground, the adab of Allah Ta'ala will come down. And he's injured. And his sahaba are injured. Many of them have, have, have uh, defended Rasulullah with their own body and with their own life. So many of the sahaba were shaheed on that day. What does he, what does he, he do in this... Uh, situation of, 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 of pain and in the situation of hurt, he, he's not going to let that, he's not going to let Abu Sufyan like talk smack and just let it go. So what did he do? He points to Umar ibn al-Khattab, answer him. He didn't even tell him what to say, he just says, this guy, answer him, shut him up. So he said, what? He said, he said, he said that your, your dead are in Jahannam, our dead are in paradise. How could that ever be even? You still lose. And it infuriated them. Why? Because the, the haq speaks on the tongue of Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu ta'ala anhu. So many, so many incidences like this, so many incidences like this, this shows the deep level of ghayrah of Sayyidina Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu for the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and for Islam. There are certain incidents, in fact, in which the ghayrah of the Prophet, the Umar ibn Khattab for the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam it, it almost overpowers his, his, uh, uh, his, his like normalcy. Like it, it becomes to the point where a person thinks that this is not normal anymore. What happens is Rasulullah he sees in a dream that him and his companions are making Umrah. And this is in the middle of being at war with the Mushrikeen of Quraysh. So he takes them, uh, he takes them and says uh, uh, that we're going to make Umrah, put, put on your ihram with me from Dhul Hulayfa. Dhul Hulayfa is just on the outskirts of Medina Munawwara. And we're going to go in ihram, labbaik, Allahumma labbaik, leave your weapons and your arms at home. Bring your sacrificial animals with you. We're going to make Umrah of the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So they get to a point just outside of, uh, of Makkah Mukarramah, just outside of the haram, the sacred boundary that surrounds Makkah Mukarramah. And they, they, uh, they, they stop there uh, and Khalid bin Walid brings like a detachment of forces. He says, stop right there. Don't go any further. We don't want to kill you because you're in ihram. They tried to provoke the Muslims into fighting so that they could kill them because they knew they were unarmed. So that they have an excuse because they look bad in front of the Arabs that look, they killed these people who were going to visit the Kaaba. But they were unable to. So they were told, just stop right there. Let's deal with this. Let's talk, talk this out. So Suhail bin Amr, who hadn't become a Muslim yet, He's a, a negotiator uh, and a, a, a general, like smart guy of the Quraysh, mashallah, very intelligent person. He's the khatib of Quraysh. He's known to be the more, most 
eloquent of their orators, he comes and they, they, they uh, negotiate a deal. What are we going to do? And what happens is, uh, uh, look at the ghayrah, the sahaba in general, radiallahu anhum, khair, I'll leave that something happens, the incident happens with Sayyidina Ali, I'll leave it for, uh, uh, for uh, Mulana Tamim to mention. And then an, inc- an incident happens with regards to the Bayat al-Ridwan. There's a time that the, the negotiators go back to Makkah Mukarramah and they don't, they, with Sayyidina Uthman radiallahu anhum, they don't show up for a very long time. And the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam uh, he takes the oath of allegiance from his companions that if these guys come back with an army to kill us, that we'll all be together, we're going to go down together to the end. Right? This ship of Islam, right? The, the best people on it are who? They're not the ones who look for the life jacket. They're the ones who dream of drowning. Right? So they all take the oath of allegiance. Sayyidina Uthman is not there. Mu'ana Bilal will tell you what happens with him and what his... Uh, his part of that, that bay'ah of that oath of allegiances. Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu ta'ala anhu, when the, uh, 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 when the, 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 the truce is signed and it's said that they're not going to make, uh, uh, they're not going to make Umrah from that year. Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu, he's like, you cannot deal with it. He's like, Ya Rasulullah, you said we're going to, you said we're going to make Umrah. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa said that yeah, you see your dream, it's a wahi. And uh, Rasulullah sallallahu t- told him like, but I didn't say this year. We'll do it. It'll happen still. But it, I, I didn't see, uh, you know, it, it must not have been intended for this, for this uh, particular year. Now, on the surface of it, it seems that he's not accepting what the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa said. But what's the reality? He accepted what the Prophet ﷺ said so completely, he couldn't process like that it would even change. There was an assumption on his part that the dream was about that year, and the assumption was faulty. It wasn't correct. The Sahaba aren't prophets, that they, you know, they never make mistakes and things like that. But his, even his issue, quote-unquote, in, uh, in this situation was what? Was because he believed in what Rasulullah said so much, it was difficult for him to process anything otherwise. This same thing happens when the same thing happens when Rasul sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Then eventually he'll pass away, which is what Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu. He cannot, he cannot, he cannot accept it that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam passed away. He took his sword out and he threatened anybody who said that the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam died. He said he went to his Lord uh, uh, like Musa salam, and he'll be back. The only person who could get him under control was who? Like was mentioned yesterday, Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anhu. Now lest a person thinks that this is a fault of his, essentially what happened is his love of the Prophet wasallam exceeded his even capacity for, to control himself. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. It's something that you and I can't even relate to. Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu ta'ala anhu, after, after that happened, Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq brought him back by reading the verses that were mentioned yesterday in uh, the, the Darshan. I think Shaykh Walid mentioned them again today, right? After that, Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab became the right-hand man of Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anhu. And even then, he never stopped learning. Imagine this, that when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam passes away, and... There are people who, first there's three threats to the Muslims, right? 
the first threat is the Romans. The second threat is who? Those people who left Islam. And the third threat is what? Those people who say, oh, we're still Muslim, but we're not going to pay zakat anymore. Just let me know. I'm going to drink green tea until you guys are good. Sure. Why not? Of course not. No, no, technique. So what, what happens is that, uh, what happens is what? I mean, this is part of a little bit of like uh, uh, backtracking uh, Moana Musa's uh, talk. But imagine, right, from a political point of view, which of the three threats are the, the uh, which of the three threats are the, the greatest and which one is the lightest? One would think, yeah, okay, they're, at least they're still praying stuff. They're not paying zakat, but like, it's not like they said, we're not Muslims anymore. We're going to worship idols and things like that, right? Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq, he gave the fatwa of what? That we're going to, we're going to fight them, even if they withhold the shiraq al the, the, the leather the strap of the of sandal that they used to pay to the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in zakat, and they, they refuse to pay it now that he's gone. We're gonna we're gonna take it from them if they don't give it voluntarily. We're gonna fight them for it. What does that even What does that even mean? That's something to talk. I mean, it's not properly the subject of my bayan. But Sayyidina Umar in the Mashra. This is you know. Remember we talked about the Sunnah of Mashra that you should consult with one another. Consultation consultation means that every person when they're asked their opinion, they should give what their real opinion is, not just what they, people think they people want to hear them say. Give your opinion. If it's not popular, that's fine. This is not like a, a, a session of like pumping up each other's self-esteem, right? If ten people give their mashwa and think I think it's a good idea and you think it's not a good idea, when asked your opinion, you should say I don't think it's a good idea for this and that reason. Maybe nobody else even thought of that, right? So Sayyidina Umar when he gave his mashwa, honestly, he said that how can we fight them when they say La ilaha illallah? And he's chastised by Sayyidina Abu Bakr who said, Ya, ya Umar, fil jahiliyati wa fil Islam. Umar, are you a tyrant in jahiliyah? You're a tough guy in jahiliyah and you become a coward in Islam? And said, no, Umar, what is his virtue in this matter? Something Mawana Musa started his bayan with, which is what? If you don't learn how to follow, how are you going to ever be a leader? The other like shaitan model of leadership where like, yeah, I don't want to follow any orders and I want to do everything my way, the Burger King model of nafs leadership. That's not how it works in Islam. What did Sayyidina Umar do? Once the decision was made, not only did he get behind it and say, we're going to agree to disagree, he submitted to it. To be able to see somebody else is better than you, that's a great virtue, it's a great blessing. This is what Sayyidina Umar did, that his position was what? There's only one person in the entire ummah that, that can do that. That's even harder. If you're like the least learned, then you can say, everybody knows, I don't know anything, I'm just going to follow. But when you get to that, that high level, it's very difficult for a person to control on their own nafs. What did he do? He could have said, you know, don't you know that Messenger of Allah said, if there was a Nabi after me, it would have been Umar? He could have said that. It's true, in fact. But he didn't. This is a sign that what? That his like control over his own nafs it was like it reached a level of perfection that most people will never even be able to dream of or imagine. So he served out Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu ta'ala anhu for the rest of his life. 
And then after when Abu Bakr Siddiq is dying, he said that this Umar is your, going to be your Khalifa afterward. Said Abu Bakr, Umar radiallahu anhu, is it like yes, and like getting out the nice turban and whatever, and no. He, he himself is now afraid. It all happens so quickly. So when the news comes that Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anhu passes away and he's in the masjid, and immediately all the people come to take the oath of uh, allegiance from him, what happened? The life drained out of his face. He looked like he was like, he was like afraid. He looked like he was like dying. And he stepped forward and he said, I heard the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam say, this is very important. All of you remember, even you Yusuf remember this, okay? He said, I heard the Messenger of Allah say, whoever seeks this affair, meaning whoever seeks leadership, Allah will humiliate him through it. If you want to be leader and you work hard to become leader, look at the guy who worked hard to be leader, mashallah. He's like completely revived the comedy industry in this country, right? It's not just him, it's every generation. If you seek to, if you seek to, if you see whoever seeks this affair, meaning whoever seeks leadership, Allah Ta'ala will humiliate him in it. And whoever this affair, this leadership is thrust on his shoulders, meaning he receives it without wanting it, but it just happens that, that, that by circumstance it happens that that person becomes leader, then Allah will aid him in it. Allah will aid him in it. And so you remember something Shaykh Walid said in, uh, earlier, that Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq was two years younger than the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So like Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam passed away at the age of 63, Sayyidina Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu will fulfill those two years and then he'll pass away. Just like that was the khilafah of Sayyidina, Abu Bakr, or Sayyidina Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu. That he has now 11 years until what? 11 years or 10 years until what? Until he reaches the same age that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa is going to pass away. And those are the years of his khilafah. Those are the years of his, his rule. And what does he do? He organizes everything wonderfully. He's the first one. He brings a diwan. He appoints his son, Sayyidina Abdullah bin Umar radiallahu anhumah, to be what? To be the official secretary of the state. Keep meticulous records about everything. When you run an organization, it's good that you trust each other. Everyone has to keep records and give uh, account of what, what's happening with money, with responsibility. And you should check up on everyone all the time. He didn't use to just... Why? Because it's amana. It's a, uh, a, a trust from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he knew because he's on the top, everything that, that happens lower than him, that, that, that happens wrong or that's a zulm on somebody, he's going to be held responsible for it. It's attributed to him that he said, I fear that a, a goat will trip over a rock on the other side of the Euphrates. Euphrates is a river in Iraq. That from Medina Munawara he said, I fear that a goat will trip over a rock on the other side of the Euphrates and Allah will ask me about it. So he used to have meticulous records about everybody. How much money they're given in stipend, how much they're paid, who's doing this, who's doing that, the governor, what did you do today, what did you do the next day, what did you do the day afterward. All the written records had to keep coming back and forth from the army and from the field. And his way of ruling was very interesting. One would think because in the beginning he was so harsh, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, in his jahiliyyah, in his early days of Islam, that he was harsh when he would rule, and he's completely the opposite. It's well known that Sayyidina Khalid bin Walid radiallahu ta'ala anhu, who was Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa said that he's the sword of Allah ta'ala. Never lost in battle once. It's well known that Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu, he uh, pulled his command from him. 
People say it's because they had some sort of personal beef, and that's not true at all. That's nonsense. People who had been through all of that together, they're not going to have beef with one another. They loved each other for the sake of Allah. Like Mulana Tamim very uh, uh, wonderfully said, even if they did disagree with each other on certain things, which they did, it was uh, like inside the family thing. It wasn't something from the outside. Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab who pulled him from command. What type of people did he used to put in command in his place? Right? He preferred as a commander Amr bin As anhu, who was mentioned earlier in the day. Why? Because Amr bin As anhu used to win battles without having to fight. He would win battles through tricking people, he would win battles through intimidation, he would win battles through diplomatic means. There was, there was so many times where he uh, made the Muslim army look so much bigger than it was, and like entire cities in Egypt surrendered to him because they were afraid of fighting. Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab in fact preferred that, that the conquest happen without fighting and without bloodshed. It said whenever a major battle happened, he would pace back and forth in the, in the gate of Medina Munawwara that faces the, the, the land in which the battle happened, waiting for the news of what happened to the Muslims. And the first thing he would ask, the Bashir would come back with the, the glad tidings, the herald of the glad tidings of victory. And Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab, the first thing he would ask is who, who gave their life in the path of Allah Ta'ala. This is how you can tell somebody what's the difference between somebody who's a good leader and someone who's callous, who, who thinks they're better than everybody else. Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab, he'd ask who, gave their, who lost their life in the path of Allah Ta'ala. And they'd say, Stashhada Fulan ibn Fulan, Fulan ibn Fulan, Fulan ibn Fulan, wa khalqun kathirun la ya'rifuhum, la ya'rifuhum amirun mu'mineen. So-and-so was shaheed in the path of Allah, son of so-and-so, so-and-so, son of so-and-so, so-and-so, son of so-and-so. And a great number of people that the Amir al-Mu'mineen doesn't know who they are. Sayyidina Umar who used to weep when he heard the news of someone giving their life in the path of Allah Ta'ala. He wasn't the guy that said, buck up, you're going to Jannah, man. Where he goes back and has dinner with his wife and kids. He used to feel their pain. We don't feel each other's pain anymore. We feel the pain if we watch like a, a, a TV show or like a movie, we'll feel the pain of like some fake Kafir character and we'll cry for them. But when it comes to our own family members, when it comes to our own people, when it comes to Burma, when it comes to Syria, comes to uh, all, all of these Somalia, uh, Central African Republic, Iraq, all of these different places, we don't, Yemen, we don't feel the pain for, for, for those people. We don't shed a tear for those people because they look like to us like animals, like they're not even worthy of our, our sympathy. Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab used to, like the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, used to go personally and console the families of those people who lost uh, uh, someone in the path of Allah ta'ala, and he would weep. He would make sure that those people that, that whose loved ones were out in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he used to make sure that they were taken care of. Anyone ever wonder why uh, Tabligh Jamaat goes out for four months? Is it just a bid'ah because that's what they see people do? <laughs> the reason is what? The reason Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab he went and asked the, the, the wives of the people, the soldiers who were out in the path of Allah Ta'ala that your, this, your husband, he's gone out of the path of Allah Ta'ala. How long, is it, how long can you take being away from them without like, life just becoming abject misery? And so he asked from the different, uh, uh, the women and from the different soldiers, etc., etc. And he came with this number of four months that he had a rule in his, in his, uh, uh, in his uh, government that no soldier should be out on the field without being able to come back and see his family for more than four months. 
That's what it's from. It's from our aslaf. It's not something that's from, uh, uh, you know, the whatever someone made up in Rywind or whatever. Right? What is, you know, there's so many practices. There's so many practices of the deen that were set up by Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu like that. And the bayan has become long, so I want to like spare you, but this is an example of like so many of those. You should learn about those things. You should appreciate the hikmah. What's another practice? When the Sahaba radiallahu anhu would conquer a city, what would they do? Would they let the Muslim army enter into the city? No. Why? Because if the locals try to get into a fight with the Muslim army, and then they overpower them, and they kill people, and they take their stuff, and whatever, or some soldier recklessly like will do something bad with a woman, or will... Uh, uh, you know, these things, they, they happen. People get into fights. It's not like you're going to call a qadi now, because it's the middle of a fight. No one will be able to prove that somebody did anything uh, wrong to anybody in that. And those people will get off scot-free. Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab what was his policy? His policy is that the conquering army is not allowed to enter into the, into the cities that they, they conquer. In the ancient world, that's what used to happen. When one army conquered a city, it's expected. Women are going to be raped, things are going to be stolen, people are going to be killed, things are going to be burned down, people are going to be humiliated and beaten. It's just the way it is. That's what the Romans did, that's what the Persians did, that's what the Greeks did, that's what Chinese did, that's what Indians did, that's what everybody did. That's not what the Ashab of the Messenger of Allah did. Madain, the imperial Persian capital, was across the river. The Sahaba had to set up camp on the other side of the river. That's what Kufa is. Kufa rapidly becomes the biggest city in the Muslim world during the time of the reign of Sayyidina Uthman, Sayyidina Ali. That's Kufa, is the whole city is what? It's because of this one policy of Sayyidina Umar. The same thing, have you ever wondered in Egypt? Right? Who here has been to Cairo? Sheikh Walid's gone now, right? But who here has been to Cairo before? Right? You've been to Cairo. Are the pyramids on the same side as Cairo of, of the Nile or on the other side? It's on the other side. The city of Memphis, right? Not Memphis, Tennessee. We're not talking about Elvis right now, right? The ancient Egyptian city of Memphis, it's on the other side of the river in what they call Giza. The Fustat, which was the original Muslim settlement in Cairo, it's on what? It's on the other side of the river, so that the Muslim army doesn't have a chance to go and dust it up and make a fight with the locals, so that people can say, look, these Muslims are just as bad as everybody else. They rape, they pillage, they loot, they do all of these things. It's what? It's good policy. It's why Islam still has this izzat. One of the greatest, one of the greatest uh, triumphs of, uh, of Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab is what? Is that during his reign, Damascus falls and comes to the Muslims. Largely because of the collaboration of the citizens of Damascus with the Muslim army to unseat the Roman garrison. Because they knew that the Muslims would be fair with them, the Romans weren't fair. Greater honor than even Damascus is what? Al-Quds al-Sharif, the keys to the city of Jerusalem are surrendered to the Muslims by the Christian patriarch of Jerusalem. And he, gave, he made a condition that we'll give up the holy city without a fight. But the surrender has to be accepted in person by Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab. Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab in his tawadu, right, in his, in his humility, he made the journey on uh, the back of a donkey from Medina Munawwara to the sacred city of Jerusalem. Riding what? Riding a donkey. What does that even mean? If you read the scripture, if you read Isaiah and you read the, 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 the books of the Old Testament, these are the descriptions of the Messiah, you know that? That he's not a man who rides a camel or a horse. Because that's what kings and like tyrants and warriors ride. 
Rather, the Messiah is going to be someone who's humble. He had a servant boy with him. They used to take turns who rides the donkey one day and who walks the other day. It turned out it was the turn of the, the servant to ride the donkey the day that he reaches the gates of the sacred city of Al-Quds al-Sharif. And they think that the servant is the, uh, the Amir al-Mu'mineen and it's not. And so what happens is that the, the, the patriarch will, will open the gates of the city and uh, uh, escort Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu into the church of the Holy Sepulchre. And when it's time for Salat, Sayyidina Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he's what? They gave him a place to pray in the church. He said, don't give me this place right now because what? I'm afraid the people after me, they're going to turn into a masjid. And then you're going to complain, look, the Muslims, they violated the truce of our, or the terms of our treaty. So he went and prayed outside of the church in a place. There's still, you know, there's a Masjid Umar right now. It's in the middle of the Christian quarter. It's right across from the Church of the Holy Sepulchre right now. But what, this was his concern and his foresight. And it's a miraculous foresight that he had. Because of what, which the honor and the izzat of Islam is still, is still protected. That no one can say that. The, the companions of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam were tyrants or they were they were uh, uh, zalimin they were people who oppressed others after conducting and finishing the accepting of the city this is something every Muslim should know by the way every Muslim should know this you should share this information with the public the Romans who had sacked the sacred city of Jerusalem under the command of the general Septimius Severus who afterward will become the emperor of Rome That entire Masjid al-Aqsa was trashed and it was destroyed block, block by block, stone by stone. The same lineage of Roman emperors in 325, uh, the emperor uh, Constantine will uh, accept Christianity. And they still left the, the, the Masjid al-Aqsa in ruins. Not only that, they used to actually throw their garbage there. They made it into the landfill of the sacred city of Jerusalem. Right? Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah uh, uh, ta'ala, there's a saying attributed to him that if the people tell you that the Romans became Christians, don't believe them. And if the people tell you that the Christians became Romans, believe them. What happened? They became Christians, quote unquote, but they're still doing the khabis, uh, uh, mushrikeen sunnah of their forefathers, which was what? Debasing, defiling the sacred temple in Masjid al-Aqsa. That was something that Sayyidina Isa didn't do. If you read the New Testament, he was so upset that even the coins that have the pictures of the, the pagan gods and the Roman emperors, that those coins were even allowed for sadaqa inside of the, inside of the, the, the courtyard of the, uh, of the, of the, of the Masjid al-Aqsa. That he overturned and threw the tables over, that they were transacting in usury with those things in that, in that sacred place. If you believe you follow Sayyidina Isa then I'm not blaming the, the, the sins of the Romans on you, but you should admit, admit that those people didn't represent Sayyidina Isa the, the ones that, uh, uh, that you attribute your, the power and the mind of your deen to. So Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab, he just negotiated a priest treaty with these guy, people. He was very upset. He was very angry. He rolled up his own sleeves, radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And he, when he found out this, he went straight to the Masjid al-Aqsa, rolled up his own sleeves and he started to clean the place up and the Muslims followed afterward and they cleaned it after him. They rebuilt it and they reconsecrated it. And Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab who even made mashra with Ka'b al-Ahbar who was a, a rabbi of the Jews who accepted Islam of how to set everything up. And since that day until this day, by Allah Ta'ala's fadl, with only one interruption, was the interruption of the defiling of the crusaders who came and shed blood in that place, 
the, 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 the sacredness of that place has been kept from that day until this day. The only exception is that the crusaders came in and shed blood in the, that holy place and they brought their horses and made a stable out of the Masjid al-Aqsa, which is what the sunnah of their forefathers, the Romans. They defiled that place. But other than that, the Muslims are the ones who kept the sanctity of that place for 1400 years. Not the Christians, even though they had several centuries of occupation of that place, nor the Yahud. This is an honor Allah Ta'ala gave our ummah. And this is an honor that was vouchsafed at the hands of Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu ta'ala anhu. So many, so many stories about how he ran the, the government with so much efficiency. So many stories of how he uh, 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 was the one who, who implemented the sunnah of the Prophet in practicality. Remember we said that their maqam is higher than ijtihad and lower than tashri'ah. They're not making the sharia themselves. But nor are they like the regular people of ijtihad from the ulama. They're in a place somewhere in the middle. The form of the Salat al-Taraweeh comes from Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu ta'ala anhu. So many, so many things come from Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu. To wrap it up, in the last year of his life, may Allah ta'ala be pleased with him, he made special ihtimam. This is one of the things Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab, remember he's muhaddath, he feels what's going to happen in the future. He used to make dua to Allah ta'ala, Ya Allah, let me die uh, a shaheed, let me die in the city of your Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa he took the, the last year of Hajj, he took the Ummahatul Mu'mineen, all of them, that they should all make Hajj again as their patron. And when he came back, he had an idea, this is the end time for him. One morning, Abu Lu'lu, the, uh, uh, the, the Persian Zoroastrian slave of Mughirat ibn Shu'bah, he had a dispute with his uh, 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 master over what? Over uh, work that he would do in his free time that he felt that he, should re- he had a deal with his master that you can take free time and do work for other people and will split the, 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 the money that, that you earn. And he felt like his master was taking too much money. Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu said what? He said, uh, 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 you know, I can't do anything because it's, if he wants to, he can just forbid you from working outside anyway. That's his right. Remember, those people were made into slaves because they fought against the Muslims. Abu Lulu was uh, uh, an engineer. He was a, uh, an engineer in the Persian army. And he knew how to make windmills, how to harness the wind in order to, to do mechanical work. And so Sayyidina Umar anhu, he says to Abu Lu'lu, he says, uh, as try to console him, trying to make him feel better, right? Even though he's a, he should have been executed, he should have died in battle for fighting the Muslims, for fighting La ilaha illallah. Sayyidina Umar anhu tries to make him feel better. He says, what? He says, Abu Lu'lu, inshallah one day I'll, have, I'll ask you, come make a windmill for me as well. And so Abu Lu'lu responds to him, he says, I'll make a windmill for you that history won't forget. And uh, when he left, uh, 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 the, his, you know, Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu, uh, people who were sitting with him, they said, oh, mashallah, you know, like you made him feel better. He says, no, this man, is, he's, he's, uh, that was a threat, what he just said to me. And so what happens is one morning at Fajr time, Abu Lu'lu had a knife poisoned. And in the darkness of Fajr, remember he said there's no lights, right? In the darkness of Fajr, he went and stabbed Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu repeatedly and he stabbed a number of uh, believers. Many of them died. Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu, when he f- realized what happened, his first uh, uh, response is to make sure the blood doesn't hit the floor because it's najis in the masjid. So it shouldn't, it shouldn't defile the masjid of the Prophet sallallahu So they carry him out and then he asked, who did that to me? And they said it was Abu Lu'lu. Uh, they caught him and they, they, they told him it was Abu Lu'lu, the Zoroastrian slave. 
And Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab عنه, thanked Allah Ta'ala that there was no believer who had cause to be so angry with him that he would do that with him. That at least, mashallah, I didn't harm or offend anyone who says La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah that they would harbor such a hatred in, inside their heart from you. He was a strong man so he didn't die right away. So they were trying to nurse him back to health. He drank a bowl of milk radiallahu anhu and they knew that he's not going to make it. When he drank the milk, the milk was coming out of his wounds. And so he asked his son to go and uh, asked his son to go and talk to Sayyidina Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha. And said that your hujra, your room is the one in which Rasulullah and Abu Bakr Siddiq are buried in. It's your room. I ask you not as a mere mu'mineen, but just, just as Umar. That do give me permission that I can be buried next to the two people I love the most. And Sayyidina Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, Allah ta'ala be pleased with her. She said that I always wish that I was the one that should be buried next to them. But I know how much you love them and how much they loved you. So I give my, my place to you. Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab who look at his justice as well. That he told his son uh, Abdullah, after I'm dead, then ask her again, in case she changed her mind or she was just saying it under pressure at this time. And he asked again, and she still gave permission. She used to visit Rasulullah wasallam, her husband, that she lost when she was only 18 years old. She used to visit him. And when she was in the Hujra Sharifa, she would not observe hijab because it was him wasallam. And then after her word, her father is buried in the same room and she didn't observe hijab in that room. When Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab who was buried there, she used to observe hijab in that room. When he was dying, عنه, he appointed a committee of six people. Sayyidina Uthman عنه, Sayyidina Ali عنه, Sayyidina Talha, Sayyidina Zubair uh, uh, عنهما, uh, uh, Sayyidina Abdurrahman bin Awf عنه, Sayyidina Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas that the six of you sit and make mashra, and the next Amir al-Mu'mineen should be one of you six, whoever you all agree upon after I leave. This is my son, Abdullah bin Umar. He should sit in your mashra, because he, why? Because he kept the records, right? Sometimes you need to have data so you can know how many armies are in this province, how many armies are in that province, you know, how much money comes from the, uh, uh, from the, to the exchequer from the income of this place or from that place. You need to know those things to make a decision properly. So he says, but under no circumstance is he to be made uh, uh, Khalifa after me. Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab al-Mughirat ibn Shu'bah came to visit him when he was dying. He says, Ya Amir al-Mu'mineen, don't spare the Muslims the instability and difficulty. Make your own son Khalifa after you right now so that we can be done with this. Sayyidina Umar in his anger, he said, Bar this person from entering my room until I'm gone from this world. I don't want to see him again. Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab passed away and then the Sahaba عنه, the process by which they select Sayyidina Uthman I'll leave that to Sayyidina uh, uh, Mawlana uh, Bilal عنه, to explain what that was. But that was how he uh, uh, left this dunya. He left this dunya himself in the in the, most, in the most beautiful state of humility and softness with every single one of the believers. And he gave his life for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and didn't utter a complaint against anybody. And because of that, 
he's buried in the Hujra Mubarak with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. To this day, no one can say salam to the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam except for that he has to say salam to him. I know my time has gone on. Malana Faraz is like, you know, he's gonna, he's gonna like whatever, assassinate me also in the masjid. And I can't help but bleed on the carpet, so it's not my fault though. But there's just a couple of things that I wanted to mention after this, which is who is his progeny? Because you know people from who their progeny was. Abdullah bin Umar who is one of the people who narrates the most hadith of the Prophet wasallam, And he's one of those people who uh, 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 he loved the sunnah of the Prophet wasallam and didn't care whether he understood it or didn't. Rather, everything he saw Rasulullah doing, he would himself do. And many hadith about certain things about the prayer and other things that, that nobody else narrates, he's the one he narrates them from Rasulullah wasallam. He lived for a long time. There was a lot of weird things that the Sahaba anhu had to see after the Khulafa Rashidin pass away and the tyrants of Banu Umayyah take over. Not Sayyidina Muawiyah, but Yazid and after him. His maslak was what? Under no circumstance should any Muslim ever fight against any other Muslim. During the Waqiyat of Jamal, in which the army of Sayyidina Ali anhu and the Ansar fought against the army of Sayyidina Aisha anha and uh, 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 Talha and Zubair, the battle wasn't started by them. The battle was started by Munafiqeen. Neither of them gave the command to fight each other. Their armies met so that they could negotiate. Even in that, in that battle, say the Hafsa, it was well known, the Hafsa, the daughter of Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab anha, and the mother of the believers, the wife of the Prophet Hafsa and Aisha, the two of them were best friends. During the life of Rasulullah and afterward as well. Hafsa wanted to join her friend Aisha in the battle of the Jamal. Right? The, it's called Waqat al-Jamal. Jamal means camel because there was a huge camel, like abnormally large camel. They called it Askar, like, which means like an army. That, that, that they bought for Sayyidina Aisha wanted to ride into that with that army. And that uh, uh, camel, uh, 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 that camel was hamstrung in the battle. Sayyidina Ali who personally, personally, what sat Sayyidina Aisha who was in the other, in the, in the other, in the other army. He sat her in the hodaj, in the place of honor, in the, the covered uh, uh, camel uh, 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 carrier, and escorted her personally back to Medina Munawwara. Now this is something so stupid, it, it, it blows my mind, how there are modern feminist uh, histor- histor- historians, historians quote-unquote, that say, oh look, uh, the, the Sahaba were progressive. Whatever the hell that means, right? The Sahaba were progressive. Why? Because look, even say the Aisha is a woman, she can go into battle. Are you out of your mind? That was the one thing she regretted the most in her entire life. Afterwards, she swore an oath, I'll never leave my house again. Don't be stupid, just do things for the sake of doing things. I'm the first Muslim that like whatever, uh, you know, took a swim in Lake Superior in the middle of winter. You're gonna get hypothermia and die, man. What's Allah Ta'ala doesn't didn't put you here for those type type of dumb things, identity politics and all this other nonsense. Sayyidina Abdullah bin Umar anhu, what did he do? He he was the, the wali of his sister. He he forbade her, you cannot go on this day. Do you think that she uh, regretted it or do you think that she was proud of her brother for that? His maslak was what? That I will never bear arms against another Muslim. Whoever wants to be a mirror, if they want it bad enough, go take it. I'll never fight against another Muslim. It's something very beautiful. It's something extremely beautiful. And it's something that, that, that history respects. 
and that every generation of this ummah respects and it's something he learned from his father that he wasn't a harsh man he was literally when he left from this he was the softest person in the entire ummah of the Prophet who's another person from the progeny of Sayyidina Umar who is worth recounting Sayyidina Umar he proposed marriage to Umm Kalthum bint Ali who's Umm Kalthum bint Ali? Umm Kalthum bint Ali is the full sister of Al-Hasan ibn Hussein She's a granddaughter of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, and a full sister of Al-Hasan and Al-Hussein. He went to Sayyidina Ali and asked, can I marry her? Sayyidina Ali was like, you're old man, why, would you, why do you want to like, marry her? What's the, what, just tell me why, I'm, I'm just asking you why. In that time, even in this time, it's not that uncommon for someone, a man who's much older to marry a, a woman who's younger, just like it's not, uh, there's nothing haram about like, someone marrying a woman who's a couple years older than, than, than him as well. They're open-minded people with regards to the, the, those things. We have like very Victorian era, era values amongst our community for reasons I still haven't figured out. But at any rate, he proposed, Sayyidina Ali didn't say no, he just said why? He said because I heard the message, Sayyidina Umar who said what? I heard the Messenger of Allah say what? That on the Day of Judgment, every, every lineage will cut off and not be able to benefit one, except for my lineage. And all in-laws will be cut off and not be able to benefit a person except for my in-laws. Sayyidina Ali who said, if that's the reason, then I give her to you in nikah. The progeny of Umm Kulthum bint Ali and Sayyidina Umar who is still alive in this ummah until this day. In fact, later on, after Sayyidina Umar who passes away, there will be a misunderstanding between Sayyidina Al-Hasan and Sayyidina Abdullah bin Umar. Umm Kulthum bint Ali is Al-Hasan's full sister. She'll come to her brother Al-Hasan and say, she'll resolve the conflict or the argument or the misunderstanding between them. Why? She'll say, you know what? He's my mahram, he's my stepson. Even though he's older than me, he's my stepson. I know him and I know how much he loves you and how much he shows respect for you when nobody's looking. What you think that he, he doesn't agree with you or he doesn't respect you, it's not right. And because of her, the two of them will, what? It will, it will, it will uh, restore the friendship of the two of them again. Remember... The companions of the Messenger of Allah and the family of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu they loved each other. And anyone who says that they fought one another, that person themselves is like a shaitan, a munafiq who's trying to create a fight where one doesn't exist. Don't you know, Sayyidina Abu Bakr or Sayyidina Umar who during his reign there was a drought in, the, in Medina. So bad, crops were dead, people were, were, were on the verge of starvation. And so Sayyidina Umar he brought everybody out of the masjid of the Prophet You don't, I mean, this is a bab of fiqh, you can learn it from Mufti Nauman, who's inexplicably absent from the stage right now, shame on you. But there he is, just look, turn around and look at him for a second. MashaAllah, Mufti Nauman, he's right there. Anyway, he'll explain this to you later if you can catch him. If you can catch him, he, a normal uh, lucky person gives you three wishes, he's going to tell you three masail of the sharia. When it doesn't rain for a long time, there's a special prayer for rain. It's called Salatul Istisqa. There was a drought in California. All the Muslims got together and did the Salatul Istisqa. Mawlana Tahir Anwar led it, right? Who's like a, a colleague of ours. Guess what? It rained. Someone big time rained. It was like someone took a screenshot of the weather report from the day before. It's all sun the whole, the whole week through. It rained, it rained like crazy. In fact, still, Mulana Tamim has every Thanksgiving like the Islahi Jalsa. Ever since the drought, every Islahi Jalsa it rains. It's not a joke. Even when I read the Salatul Istisqa, when I read it in the fifth book, I remember I was sitting in Abu Dhabi in the middle of the summer and it rained. 
Yeah, and I asked my sheikh, I said, do you think maybe when we read this uh, kitab on nikah, I'll get married? He's like, don't. <laughs> don't get your hopes up, son. So what happened, Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab brings the entire, uh, 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 all the, 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 the Muslims out, the believers, out of the message of the Prophet because that's the sunnah is to pray the istisqa with nothing between you and the heavens. This was the ijtihad of Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu. That when the believers formed their sufuf to, to pray the, the istisqa, right? Istisqa is like the anti-Eid. Eid, you're celebrating the, 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 the gifts of Allah Ta'ala. Right? So you say, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, La ilaha illallah. In istisqa, you go to the place saying istighfar, astaghfirullah, astaghfirullah. And you don't wear your nicest clothes, you wear your most worn clothes. You bring your children with you. You bring your livestock with you. Even the, the non-Muslims, they're asked to come and stand on the side. Why? Because who knows, maybe one of them will become Muslim one day. Or maybe one of their children is there for whose sake Allah Ta'ala is going to bring the rain down. All of you, and then you read two rak'ahs. And then it's a sunnah that the, the ridah, the, the shawl, right? That the Rasul Sallallahu and the Sahaba used to wear. It's okay, you should go get a, go get a shawl. I'm sure somebody here sells them, right? Go, go get one if you don't have one. You flip it, you flip it upside down as a sign that what? Inshallah, Allah Ta'ala will change the, the situation of the believers. So he did the Salatul Istisqa like they used to do during the life of the Prophet Sallallahu But what was his ijtihad radiallahu anhu? He asked for Sayyidina Abbas radiallahu anhu. You know the same Abbas that he told the Prophet Sallallahu to execute <laughs> some years earlier? <laughs> he said that Abbas come forward. And he made dua to Allah Ta'ala. He said, Ya Allah, this is the closest person in blood relation to your Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. The Messenger of Allah isn't with us. It's the closest person in blood relation to your Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Because he's with us by the barakah of him being with us, bring the rain down on, on, on the believers. And they made his tisqa and it rained. Tell me something, if the Sahaba and the family of the Prophet didn't get along, why would they do something like that? You notice that if you go to Medina Munawwara, there's the, on the dome, right, on the green dome, right? You know what the green dome is? That's directly above the grave of the Prophet When the people used to go to, when the people of Medina, it was their old custom, whenever they would be walking in the streets and they would see the dome, it used to be the highest, the highest building in all of Medina at one time. You could see it from the entire city. They used to say, As-salatu wassalamu alayka ya Rasulullah. May the peace and blessing of Allah Ta'ala be on you, O Messenger of Allah. That if you look in the Qibla direction of the dome, there's like a little bit of a mound. That dome was built over another dome. That other dome is the, built over the roof. During the, 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 one of the droughts in Medina Munawwara, during the reign of, the, uh, 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 during the reign of Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu, Sayyidina Aisha radiallahu anha, she made a suggestion that what? That you make a small hole in the roof of the, of the Hujra Mubarakah. So that there's nothing that intervenes between the, the, the Prophet sallallahu grave and between the heavens. And you'll see the, the mercy and the rahmah will come down. And so they did that, and it rained as well. We're talking about istisqa in the reign of Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu. That little mound in the, in, the, uh, in the dome is a place where it's like a window that can be opened if it's, it needs to be opened, although it hasn't been opened for quite some time. But at any rate, this is what? This is the love of Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu for the family of the Prophet sallallahu that there's still a bloodline amongst the Muslims, which is the descendant of what? The full sister of Al-Hasan al-Hussein. 
the, the descendants of Sayyidina Ali and Sayyidina Fatima and had the daughter of the Messenger of Allah from one side and from the other side Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab right? there are a number of other people Sayyidina Umar ibn Abdul Aziz and you know, even from our own Mashaykh mashallah, in the Indian subcontinent you know, if you want to see in the later times where is all the faith from it's from two people it's from Mujaddad Afsani and from, from uh, Shawlila and his family both of them are the descendants of Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab there's a lot, the time has gone over. Maybe one day we can have a, a program about those mashayikh as well, inshallah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the, 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 the true love of these people and that by the barakah of al-mar'u ma'aman ahabba, the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, that a person will be with the one that, that they love, that even if we can't do any good deed right in the rest of our life, that because we love them and we sincerely love them and we wish that we could be like them as much as a person can wish in their heart, and that we would have given the, literally the shirt off of our back just to be able to see them once. That Allah Ta'ala, because of it, forgives our sins and changes our life for the better and gives us a maqam with them forever and ever in Jannah. Wa sallallahu ta'ala wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.